Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, a Penguin Random House publication that came out last summer, plus a whole lot more. I wrote the um, Ask the Labor Nurse blog for Fit Pregnancy for years and years, and um, they're still, I haven't written for them in a while, but they're still uh, featuring my articles on their website. Um, And in fact, this week's reader email comes via that. So I'll read that in a little while. What's been going on with all you all? I have been, let's see, I had a chance last week to do a guest performance on um, Portland Afternoon Live, a new talk show on KATU Channel 2 here in Portland. Um, and I've, I've done a few segments for them in the past for the morning shows, and they are so much fun. I really like those folks. They had a last minute spot and asked if I could come on and talk about pregnancy tips, and it turns out I was free. Um, I think this is only the second or third week of this new talk show, so it was fun to be there at sort of the beginning of it. Um, One thing that I thought was pretty interesting, one of the tips I mentioned during my little four-minute segment was that I think that women should choose the right kind of healthcare provider to match their needs, their health history, and their specific goals for what kind of a birth they want. Um, Specifically, I said that I think most women should see a midwife for their prenatal care and labor and delivery care because the midwifery model of care is low intervention, high education, respectful, compassionate, skilled, and it's the perfect model of maternal health care for about 85% of pregnant women who are low risk, perfectly healthy, normal women. Um, what caught me off guard was that the host of the show said it had never occurred to her when she was having her daughters to use a midwife. Um, now I live in Portland, which is a pretty liberal birth community. We have midwives in every hospital. We have birth centers. We have home births. We have water births in hospitals. We have nitrous oxide, just about everything you could ever want. We have it. So if it's still surprising in Portland that midwives are really, really good choices for top-notch maternal health care, well, then we're screwed. I understand if word hasn't gotten around in maybe, you know, some very small or rural communities that, you know, maybe they don't know yet that midwives are great. But Portland? Really? Come on. Anyways, um, let's see. What else is going on? Well, the debate, right? I got pretty political a couple weeks ago, and I'll just say this little thing this time. If she didn't convince you that she's the best choice for president, then what's it going to take? What's it going to take? That debate kind of said it all. Um, Let's see. I want to get to this week's email because I think that it is humbling and important. I am really grateful to Aisha for writing me. She read something that I wrote um, several years ago for Fit Pregnancy called, uh, I think it was called C-Section Scars 101, and it's still in big circulation online, so I get emails about it every now and again. I'm going to read you our back and forth a little bit, because I really think that what Aisha has to say um, is deserving of the full conversation. She writes, Hello, my name is Aisha, and I just read your article on C-section scars, and I noticed that you said scars will be red or pink. I wanted to inform you that scars can also be dark brown like mine, my mother's, my sister-in-law's, and my friend's, and many women around the world. I hope that this article wasn't intended only for people with white skin. Every time I look something up related to skin, It always said red and pink, but my skin is never red or pink. And for once, I just wanted to say something about it. That was all I wanted to share. Thanks for your time. Wow. I have some learning to do, don't I? So I wrote back. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for reaching out and for speaking up. I'm happy to hear from you. No, this article was not intended only for white people. In my experience looking at postpartum surgical scars. They do usually look red or pink on most women, regardless of skin color, but only for the first few weeks to months, which is the time period I was writing about. Thanks for letting me know that your scar and your family member's scars were a different color during those weeks. 
I'm sure there are a lot of women out there who feel the same way you do about skin color not being correctly addressed. I bet it's super frustrating. In my capacity as a writer for a nonprofit organizations um, that focus on maternal health around the world, I've spent a lot of time thinking and researching and writing about disparities um, and about both the positive and negative maternal health experiences that women of color have. I'm curious, are there other issues you'd like for women to hear about or that you'd like healthcare providers and journalists to know? I'd really love to hear your opinion. Um, if you're okay with it, I'd also love to read your letter on my podcast. Thank you again for writing. Well, Aisha got right back to me. Ms. Jean, thank you, thank you, thank you for responding. My apologies if my message came off a little strong. Don't apologize, Aisha. I love strength. I was on my phone searching late at night and became frustrated trying to find images that looked like what I have. After a while, you either become numb or frustrated, and after so much effort of typing in different things, it makes you feel like something is abnormal about you, and I just had to say something to someone this time. So glad you did. With regards to my C-section scar, it started out kind of purple looking, and then it got more dark brown. Like coffee color, my skin tone is cinnamon brown. Throughout my pregnancy, I've searched online for pictures of breasts, nipples, stretch marks, the pregnancy line, and everything in between. And for while, while for many people whose mother tongue is a European language, the images of lighter people may not bother them in a conscious level, and they become accustomed to adjusting what they find in order to apply it to themselves to others like myself, it becomes annoying and you try to search under African or black, etc. And you still don't see what you're looking for. It just got me to thinking this is why people create subgroups for themselves and how I wished there was an Afro Google so that I could finally search for things without having to use an ethnic prefix or learn a non-euro language. I know that where I live, I am a minority and probably don't matter to most scientists and doctors that are not brown-skinned, but I also have family in West Africa, and I feel sorry for them that they too are using the same search engines and, as I and probably will come up with the same search results as my friends of African descent in Panama and Puerto Rico. And it just makes sense why so many of us feel like we're not the norm. It's very damaging to the psyche in my observation. Just as an example, like when you say, usually the scars are red or pink, that to me implies that I'm unusual. My skin can turn red if I have a mosquito bite, but my mother or sister-in-laws cannot. It's impossible. Feel free to read my email on your podcast. You're more than welcome. As for other issues pertaining to, pertaining to maternal health, I just feel like having a physician or provider of similar cultural background can many times be just as important as having a physician of the same gender. For some, having a male OBGYN is not a big deal, while others might prefer female, as I do. Even if a woman hasn't had a child, there are still ways that we understand each other and she is more able to empathize, I feel. The same with ethnicity. Even though I do not speak a native language and my family has been in the United States since slavery, because of the segregation of this country, my culture is very different from people whose families were not a part of those experiences. Even if someone is from Haiti or Cuba or Jamaica, but identifies with their African heritage, there is a way that we see the world, and there are trials, like slavery and oppression, that unite us as a diaspora. I had many lovely nurses when I was being induced, three failed attempts, with this pregnancy of various backgrounds. The majority that I felt most comfortable with and received more help from were those who were African, Caribbean, and Black American, and the same went for the doctors. The difficulty in finding a Black physician, though, is that you can't go by the language or their name unless they are a doctor from an African country, because unlike Armenians, Filipinos, and, and Jewish most of us have British or other European last names, so you have to call and ask if the doctor is of African descent, 
which makes it more challenging for those who have that preference. Thank you so much once again for your response. It feels good to be able to share this with someone. Aisha. Well, Aisha, thank you for your perspective. And you are indeed sharing this with probably thousands of people at this point. It's a really important perspective. And I'm so glad that you're adding to this conversation. I've learned something from you and I hope others will too. Maybe the question starts out about the color of a scar, but really it's about a lot more than that, isn't it? Thank you again for reaching out and speaking up. Okay, shifting gears now. Let's get ready to talk to our guest. Um, I've mentioned before that I do a lot of online surfing, and I always magnetize on articles that are about women's experiences, especially as mothers and in the workforce. Um, So when I saw an article titled, Having It All is Impossible, of course, I was intrigued. Just by virtue of the title, I gotta agree that having it all is impossible. There simply aren't enough years, enough time, or opportunity to do all of it, everything, the whole enchilada. We can, however, do lots of it most of the time or over the course of many years. Now, what is that it we're talking about? Well, traditionally, I guess what we're talking about is, you know, having a marriage or a relationship, a family, career, friends, hobbies, time for fitness and spiritual and community engagement, and a relatively cohesive home life. You know, toss in a couple of pets and some aging parents, and that's what we consider having it all, or something like that, right? I want to talk to the author of that essay, so let's call up Rachel Kramer-Bussell and find out what having it all means to her. Hello? Hi, Rachel. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Good. Rachel, where am I finding you? What what part of... Go ahead. I live in New Jersey, right outside Atlantic City. Ah, okay. Okay. And I'm in Portland, Oregon, and we can have these conversations across the country. Thank you, technology. I love it. Fabulous. I have a tattoo from Portland, Oregon on my arm. Oh, well, let me introduce you to our (laughs) listeners, and then that's going to be my first question. Clearly. Okay. Clearly. (laughs) Rachel Kramer Bussell is a freelance writer focusing on sex, dating, relationships, books, and pop culture. She's the editor of over 60 anthologies, including the Best Women's Erotica of the Year series. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Elle.com, Glamour, Marie Claire, O oh, the Oprah Magazine, Salon, and other publications. Woo! You've got a really <laughs> nice roster there, Rachel. Thank you. I, I, I'm a freelancer, so I try to write about pretty much whatever I'm interested in any on any given day. Yeah, I bet. Well, generally, my first question is, after I read your your bio, is I ask you to tell me who you are and what you do. Okay, well, I do a little of a lot of different things. I mean, mainly I'm a writer. I write essays, uh, articles, more journalistic articles, uh, book reviews. I also do copywriting. And I also edit anthologies and teach um, writing classes, mostly around erotica, both in person and online. And uh, that's that's the basic things I do. But I mean, as for what I write about, it really varies widely from entertainment to relationships to pop culture, um, technology sometimes. I mean, I think that's one of the things I like about what I do, that it can cover such a wide range of things, including I often write about my personal life. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in a similar boat. I'm a freelancer myself. And so, but I pretty much specialize in healthcare and women's issues um, and women's health and maternal health and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's the way you make a business. You write for a lot of people. You write about a lot of topics. That's the fun part. Yes, and usually especially if it's a personal topic, I'll know I want to write about it when I just can't stop thinking about it. You know, sometimes literally I wake up at four in the morning and I'm thinking about something and I realize I, I have to write about this or I'll keep waking up at four in the morning thinking about the same thing. It'll it'll haunt me. <laughs> I was up at 4.30 this morning with a very similar problem. <laughs> so tell me about this tattoo, would you? I got to know your connection to Portland. Well, 
So I actually have, I have three tattoos. One I got in Brooklyn where I used to live on my back that says open. Then I got one that says heart on my arm, my left inner arm in Portland, Maine, a city I have friends in and really enjoy. And then it felt very sort of complimentary to get my last one on my uh, right shoulder in Portland, Oregon. So I always like to say, oh, I have one from Portland, Maine, one from Portland, Oregon. And the the one on my shoulder is a tiger lily um, flower and it's orange with green leaves. And it's it's one I I said to my friend who's a tattoo artist, I said, I just want something pretty. I mean, I I saw it before she did it, but uh, I just wanted something that would make me smile when I looked at it. Mm -hmm. So that's what's on my arm. I have, I think I have tiger lilies in my yard. Oh, and it also makes me happy then when I see them. I don't really have a special affinity for tiger lilies, but now I do because I, I have it on my shoulder. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Portland's definitely a tattoo town. I'm, I'm in the minority because I don't have any, but um, I, my son does and everybody I know does. It's a big thing here. Yeah. Yeah. So I got in touch with you because I saw your article um, in Salon titled, Having It All is Impossible. What Women Really Need is Balance, Fairness, and Respect. Um, and I, so obviously that's right up my alley in terms of feminism and motherhood. Um, I wonder if I could just start out our conversation about that essay by reading the opening paragraph. Sure. Okay. Our culture is coming to a crossroads over the issue of work-life balance, but this time it's not about the mythical ideal of women having it all, but instead about how we grapple with the fact that it's impossible for anyone, male or female, to have it all. Why? Because we all get only 24 hours a day, and at a certain point we have to choose between work, family, socializing, resting, and whatever other ways we choose to spend our time. True. So... I guess my first question is, where do you think this idea of needing to have it all comes from? You know, it's a tough question because I think sometimes some people put the answer back onto feminism in the sense of, well, if women want to work and want to, you know, have a relationship and want to have a family, you know, it's kind of on them to balance all those things. So, you know, I, I do, and I think that's really unfair because, first of all, I think we don't really have these conversations with men. I mean, we we don't question, like, why is this man not taking his child to the first day of school? Um, uh, and um, I, I think, I mean, I think a lot of women put it on themselves to try to do everything or to try to not maybe it's that they don't want to be seen as um, less of a worker once they become parents. You know, they want to try to do everything they were doing before, plus all these new responsibilities, or, you know, they don't want to feel like they're neglecting their child in any way. Um, You know, I, I don't think it's all that it's, I don't think it's only that women put it on ourselves, but I think some women do feel like if they're not doing literally everything personally, then they're, they're leaving someone out. And, and I think that's tough because no, nobody can be everywhere at once. Or, or even if you're trying to monitor all those things, you're going to be distracted in one arena and not giving your fullest to it. Like even if you're at work, if you're constantly calling your daycare babysitter or thinking about that or wondering what's happening there. I mean, are you really giving your all to that? And probably vice versa. If you're with your kids and you're checking your phone constantly because you want to feel like, or or you want to be perceived as being available. I mean, are you really present in the moment with your kids? Right. Right. I think that we are in a crossroads, but I kind of feel like The newest generation of parents um, are, are getting a better handle on it. And, you know, I feel really fortunate that, you know, I'm, I, my youngest is 16, my oldest is in her early 30s. So, you know, I'm a generation ahead of today's parents in terms of trying to work out the work-life balance. And um, I was really fortunate that my husband has always been 
a, a pretty equal partner in both parenting roles and, um, you know, house, house maintenance, housekeeping stuff. Um, and, and I think every relationship, they, you figure out who does what, when, and how. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing less struggle with brand new parents today. I'm seeing more guys dropping off at school and more guys, um, you know, doing all the stuff that women do and women out in the workplace. But I do agree I we're, we're at a crossroads. This is a transition. We're not there yet. I mean, I think that's great. And I also think a lot of it is about, you know, the expectations of, of both partners and, you know, not assuming that, you know, if it's a male female couple, like the woman's going to do certain things just because of her gender. I think, you know, you, I think everyone has to figure those things out. And and that also goes for people who don't have kids, you know, like in my relationship, my boyfriend does almost all of the cooking because he's good at it and he likes it. He gets antsy if he doesn't cook for a few days. And for me, I really don't enjoy cooking. I'm not that great at it. I have a few things that I make, but I'm really happy to help. And I actually, some people think this is weird, but I really enjoy doing dishes. So I do all the dishes and I don't mind because, you know, those things complement each other and and not all of our interests complement each other. Like there's certain household chores, tasks that neither of us like. So we take turns or someone just does it because it has to be done or we outsource it, but, you know, it's not always so harmonious and wonderful. But, you know, it's, I think it's funny because sometimes I read these articles about, oh, well, why don't men do more chores? And in my relationship, I'm the one who's the messier person who, you know, will let things go for a lot longer than he will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you um, mentioned that, you know, there are a lot of women who will just go ahead and, you know, do everything. And I, in my book, um, Common Sense Pregnancy, I talk a little bit about how this dynamic um, can start even, you know, as early as in the delivery room. There's this social and cultural expectation that women are the experts in domestic and family raising issues and guys are the little helpers and they're going to we're going to give them a lot of advice and we're going to tell them what to do. And when we hand them that baby, we're going to say, now don't, don't drop your baby as if, you know, he's not going to do that. We don't do that to women. So we set up this dynamic right from the get go that, you know, makes guys recognize that we think you're second best. You're perfectly good. We like you very much, but she's the primary parent clearly. And that's stuff that we have to battle, you know, we, we just have to be really mindful of that. But then there's also this thing where sometimes women um, second guess and undermine their partner's efforts and contributions. They might take sort of like a my way or no way attitude about how things should be done from housekeeping to cooking to childcare, taking duties. Um, and they kind of figure that if their partner doesn't do things their way or the way they want them to, that they just have to do it themselves. And that puts this, again, puts the other spouse or partner in a not good enough position. And rather than complying or adhering to their partner's standards, they check out. And then the woman complains that she has to do it all. It's it's a weird little tumble that so many relationships get into. And that sounds like it's a cycle because once you start to, if, if someone starts to feel resented or like they're not valued, then they're not going to probably want to step up and try to figure out ways around that. They'll just default to, oh, okay, then you, you do it. And, you know, I, I don't have kids yet, but, you know, my boyfriend and I have talked about some of the specifics around what that would look like. Um, and for instance, like he really can't handle seeing anyone throw up like if even if we're watching it on tv he he has to turn away like he he can't handle it he gets sick so you know we've pretty much said i would handle that and i'm okay with that because i don't feel like he's just you know saying that to get out of it he genuinely you know has a problem with it and it would it just wouldn't work so you know i think that 
we've the way we've handled household chores is hopefully the way we would handle things around parenting, you know, and, and some things obviously would just have to be on a case by case basis. But, you know, I think that it doesn't always fall along gender lines. And what you were saying about this default assumption that a, I think it's insulting all around because it's to say that women just naturally know everything. I mean, that leaves out many, the many women who plenty of aspects of parenting don't come immediately to them, you know, and and then that makes them feel inadequate. Yeah. Or like, are you kidding? I have to be the expert here. And and it's insulting to men too. I mean, I think, you know, that, that kind of tells them, oh, well, you'll always be second best no matter what you, what you do. Yeah. 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 It's a hard one. So in this essay, um, you reference another article titled Feminism Has Enabled My Husband to Be Lazy and Selfish. That's a heck of a title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, the author of that one, talks about her grievances over the fact that, well, I think the way that you wrote it is she busts her ass to work hard to support her family. Her husband, in her opinion, is far from doing his fair share. And it made me kind of wonder, you know, just another slant on this conversation is, you know, what responsibilities do partners and couples have towards supporting each other's careers and home lives and all of that, but also you know, taking responsibility for pursuing their own passions. I mean, I think it's so tricky because I think sometimes, especially in those situations where someone's either out of work or someone has maybe chosen to pursue something creative for a, a given amount of time, and then if that doesn't work out, they find something else, and the other person says, okay, I'll support you for a year. Like, what happens when that year is up? I mean, I think sometimes people aren't always honest about what they really want to do or what their plan is. I actually just read a novel where this was part of the plot. Um, It's called Soulmates by Jessica Gross. And one of the issues in the main couple's marriage we find out is that, um, you know, the, the husband wanted to be a playwright and he wanted to write and basically take a lot of time to do that. And the wife was a, a big time lawyer, so she was happy to support him for a while until she started to feel similarly to the author of that essay, I think, that you know, that that he wasn't really giving it his all. It wasn't like he was home spending, you know, twelve hours a day really pouring his heart and soul into his playwriting. She felt like he was, you know, goofing off. And I think that's I think to me that was the crux of the problem that the the author had in that essay, and she sort of tried to pin it on feminism, but really I think it was that she felt overburdened by her duties and simultaneously like her husband wasn't picking up the slack at all and didn't really appreciate what she was doing. And I, I mean, I think we all feel burdened sometimes by our duties. Like sometimes even if you love your job, you just don't want to go to work or or you're overwhelmed, or it's just a bad day. And you, you think, oh, well, like, I don't want to have to do this. And I think that can be compounded if you feel like you're partnered with someone who's not even trying. Yeah, I've definitely had, um, you know, times in my, I've, I've been married a really long time. And there have definitely been times where I know that I have felt like I was doing the lion's work, and he wasn't. And I know that there are times when he feels the same, has felt the same way, right. that he was carrying the, the burden. And I know that sometimes what that felt like was, oh, you know, it just felt, oh, there was blame and stuff like that. But now when I'm looking back over a long history, I realize that sometimes there are just times where you both can't be on the same, you're not, you're not both on the same page in terms of productivity. Or, you know, what you need at that time. And it can even, you know, manifest in things like, oh, you get to the weekend, which for many families is when you get the chores done, you get the groceries done, you get the laundry done, and then you get the kids to all of their things. And then if there's time out, maybe you can flop on the couch for whatever you call, you know, fun. Netflix and books and whatever it is. But it's fun is this really small segment of life. The rest is work and responsibility. But... 
you know, what if what you really need is you need to have fun, you know, in order to be happy, you need to go have some fun and not scrub the sink. You know, it's just. uh. And I, I also think sometimes this gets boiled down in our culture to just about money, like who makes the most money. It, and and therefore that person should or does dictate how the chores will go or or the person who makes less money or maybe doesn't bring in any income is supposed to do all the chores and and I don't think it's only about money um I think it's also about what we were saying earlier effort like feeling like and feeling appreciated I think the author of that essay didn't feel appreciated and she felt like her husband was taking advantage of being home or I think he worked part-time but she felt like he really wasn't hustling or trying to better himself and therefore their family while she was going overboard to do that so I think that it wasn't just that he was working part-time or maybe not bringing in as much money but that he wasn't that he was okay with that situation like he didn't feel like there was any imbalance or problem and wasn't trying to change it at all and so maybe you know, it's and not I think money can be an easy seeming way to measure those things but it's not the only answer because what if one person let's say is a lawyer who makes $100,000 a year and someone else is a teacher who makes let's say half that I mean, that doesn't mean the teacher works less or isn't as dedicated to their job. Right. And, you know, in terms of this this one article that you reference, I'm wondering, really, is it about feminism is or is her husband just kind of an asshole? I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, we don't and we, we also don't, know. don't really know his side of it. Of course either. not. Yeah. You know, and it's you know, I think another issue, something that I've both had in my relationship and continue to have is that. My partner works a a job with traditional hours, you know, like nine to five, nine to six. I work mostly freelance hours. So that could be weekends. It could be nights. It could be early mornings. Um, And so I can't and I can't always predict, you know, sometimes I have an article that I think will take two hours and it takes five hours. And I don't know that pretty much till I'm writing it. So I can't always predict. And you know, some of our struggles around, you know, what we, how we value our time and how we spend our time have been around me working when we could be spending time together. And it's a struggle sometimes because I don't want to work, you know, not literally 24 seven, but like, I don't want to work all weekend long, even if I could earn more money every weekend, because that, you know, just doesn't, you know, the value I'd be getting out of that would be coming straight out of my relationship. And there were times, like, there have been times where I had the opportunity to work kind of as much as I wanted. And I had to step back and say, okay, I could maybe work on a Saturday, but not both Saturday and Sunday and all through the week, because just we weren't, we were hardly seeing each other. And, and that, that was, you know, not good for either of us. But at the same time, as a freelancer, you know, my income and my job, avail- my the availability of jobs is always up in the air. So it's hard to say no to work. And that's something I struggle with. And I imagine a lot of freelancers struggle with, um, you know, valuing your time and how it relates to how you earn money. You know, what, what do you say no to, 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 to spend time with your friends or your, you know, partner or family? Yeah. I think that it's easiest to you know, value things that actually have a number attached to them, monetary value. I mean, because you can say, okay, you know, it, it means that my time is worth, you know, this amount per hour, this allotment of my energy and attention is worth this number, and we can measure it. Whereas, you know, the time that you spend with your friend or your partner or your children or knitting, there's no, you know, you can't, put a number on it. And And, so it isn't necessarily valuable. And it also can seem like, oh, well, you have an endless amount of time in the future or the next day or the next week to spend with your partner. It it doesn't seem as finite as an opportunity that, you know, if you don't say yes to, we'll just go to someone else. I think that is something I still struggle with figuring out, you know, how many hours are reasonable for me to work and also spend 
enough time with my partner that we and both have a life. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Or even if it's not necessarily spending time with my partner, but just, just relaxing or, or not working. Um, and that all just gets so much more complicated once children enter the relationship, you know, certainly. I, yeah. They're the ones who tell you um, really how to prioritize your time. <laughs> You know, it's just. Yeah. And so, and you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily an easy answer to any of this. And and then, you know, we haven't even got into, you know, things like maternity leave or paternity leave and how to, how you balance those things. Um, I mean, I, I, but I do think it's, it's not this, it's not as complicated without kids, but it's still a balance when you're, you're just two people and, you know, sometimes, you know, one person has to work till eight o'clock. I mean, I could see that the other person might resent that if they're done at five o'clock and they feel like, oh, I'm spending three hours by myself. You know, am I really, do I really have a partner or do I just have someone I see, you know, for an hour at night or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It all has to be worked out. And, you know, I, I think that I don't know anybody who actually says, oh, great, we fixed it. <laughs> we, we know exactly how to do it now. We've got it. It's perfect. <laughs> you know? Right. I, I think it's always evolving. I mean, yeah. certainly in my relationship, it's evolved a lot of different times. You know, there's been times where, you know, my partner has encouraged me to do work that I wanted to do, even if it did interrupt us because it was a good opportunity. And, you know, sometimes those are things you just can't predict. You know, I, uh, I was on vacation with him, which we rarely take a vacation together. We were only away for three days. And I said, okay, I'm gonna try to like, leave my phone in the hotel room, not be online. All of a sudden, a piece I had written for the New York Times, which was, it's, you know, the biggest byline of my career that, you know, I, I had thought it was going to run the next month was running in two days. So I had to be editing it while we were on this special vacation. And he totally understood what was he going to say? No, don't do it. But it was frustrating. And I felt I felt a little guilty because I was interrupting our private time together in the beautiful space to to do work. On the other hand, there wasn't really anything I could do about it. I, you know, I didn't plan it that way. And it just happened that way. Yeah, that's you so know I, the thing about the work-life balance is that there's the life part. <laughs> and I think like that goes back to though the concept of understanding each other. I mean, I think any good partner would understand if it's a really major opportunity that won't come again that is very time sensitive. I mean, sometimes you do have to drop everything. I think though if you're dropping everything all the time and you're always saying it's an emergency or it's, you know, vital, then, then you're abusing that privilege. So I think it again goes back to kind of communicating some standards. And you know, my boyfriend will, will say to me, okay, you know, you have your phone out, we're, we're supposed to be doing something. You know, why, why are you checking your, your phone? And sometimes there is a legitimate reason, like I'm waiting for an urgent email, but sometimes I'm just doing it reflexively. And I have to be the one to remind myself to, okay, your phone can wait. Whatever's on there is not, you know, going to go away. It's not, you know, in the next two hours, it'll still be there waiting for you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So you also, in this one article, you you reference an essay on maternal guilt, um, where you say, instead of acknowledging that kids can thrive with various kinds of caregivers, we seem to have decided that the ideal mother is some unholy hybrid of Marissa Meyer and a Mormon mommy blogger. And I, um, I saw that and I sort of had to laugh a little bit because I, I talk about, you know, part of the job of parenting is to teach your child that all kinds of people are perfectly competent, compassionate caregivers, and that it's a hundred percent fine if dad's way is really different than mom's way, as long as they agree on the basics, like safety you know, and, and common values and those kinds of things. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to get your take on it based on referencing that essay. Well, I mean, I think that actually that author, Jessica Gross, is the one whose novel I was just talking about. You know, I think she's talking a lot about 
women trying to do everything perfectly, partly to feel like they're being good moms, but I think also to keep up with what they think all the other moms are doing. And it kind of becomes almost a competitiveness or just trying to feel like you fit in, um, you know, without it being so specific to your child, but about like the community and what people will think of you when, you know, you know, different people are going to have both different amounts of time and different interests. You know, not everyone wants to make everything look like Martha Stewart. I mean, maybe they wish it magically did, but not everyone has the patience or interest in doing that. Some people might rather spend their time, you know, hanging out, watching TV, and, like, that's okay, too. I mean, they're free time, not every minute of the day, you know, but you don't have to be up till 2 in the morning doing everything exactly. And, actually, I have a friend. She's a single mom, and we went to her son's uh, preschool picnic, and she told me she'd been up till 3 in the morning making cupcakes, and something went wrong, and she had to go to the store and start over, and then she made two different kinds. And, I mean, they were beautiful cupcakes. They tasted great. But I, I felt bad for her that she was so perfectionist about it that, you know, I mean, yes, it's one thing if you need an ingredient and you just can't make it, but I... I but it's cupcakes. I, I don't think anyone expected her to stay up till three in the morning doing this, you know? But so and, many women have this kind of badge of honor. I stayed up that late. I worked this hard. I gave up everything so that I could be the best mother or I could be the best partner, being the best, it's really important until you realize that, yeah, not really. And also, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, especially like little kids, like they're going to appreciate whatever it is, right? you know, and, you know, and I'm not saying don't do a good job or don't be proud of what you're doing, but don't, I, and I'm not a mom. So I feel like in some ways I'm not necessarily equipped to talk about this, but I also feel like, you know, nobody should sacrifice their own physical or mental health just for the sake of trying to impress other people. Yeah. When I when I was a very new mom, I had a few friends and we lived in Los Angeles <clears throat> at the time. And, you know, LA can have, they can go way over the top on the birthday parties. And I remember that when um, my two friends and I and we all had kids the same age, we went to a two-year-old birthday party. And the um, it was the mom who managed the whole thing. I don't even know if the father was there at the house when it happened. She had it catered. She had kid food. She had adult food. She had entertainment. She had, oh my God, <clears throat> she didn't have ponies, but it wouldn't have surprised me if she did. <laughs> she had, it was over the top. And our kids were two. And um, didn't get it. You know, they were just, if we had put a bunch of wrapping paper on the floor, they would have had just as good a time. Um, And my friends and I just sort of promised each other then and there that, no, we don't do this. We don't do this. We throw whatever birthday party we want, but we don't go over the top like this because they're two. And we don't have to do it to impress each other. Let's just lower the standards, people. Lower the standards. And I also think that when you take that into higher ages, you know, when the kids are 16, 17, if they get these, you know, over the top, like super over the top and they get everything they want, like they don't have anything to look forward to, you know, if, and, and then also what are you really teaching them if, you know, they're just trying to outdo all the other kids? I feel like the kind of party you just said, you just mentioned is, is, for the parents, you know, to try to impress the other adults, not necessarily for the kids. Although I have another friend who is just kind of naturally talented. And, um, you know, she's, it's easy for her to make things beautifully. It just is her thing. And um, she always throws over the top parties for everything. She throws parties for everything. And actually, that is her fun. That is her joy. She just clearly loves it. I think that's a totally different situation. You know, like, you know, because we all have our things that we're interested in. And if you're good at that and you like it, then go for it. I mean, my boyfriend loves to throw dinner parties and, 
you know, he'll spend $300 at the grocery store getting all these ingredients and, you know, just making everything look beautiful and spending a whole day cooking. I would never want to do that. I mean, I would if there was a situation I really had to do it for some reason, but it would never come naturally to me to want to spend my time that way. But it really brings him a lot of joy. And it's, I, I mean, you got to find your fun. You got to find your fun. And people appreciate it. You know, I think, you know, when, when you do that, you know, as long as your efforts are being appreciated, then great if it's if it's voluntary. Yeah, it really cut does come down to, you know, having some gratitude for each other's efforts, making making as much of an effort as you can, doing your best, you know, on a day to day basis. So we're at the point in our podcast where generally I would ask, you know, my final question. Um, but I'm going to ask it to you a little bit differently. Okay. Um, so my last question is, um, where are you in your relationship to motherhood? But you just wrote a new essay for Washington Post that kind of sums it up. And I wondered if you'd want to talk about um, that article, Being Childless Feels Worse Than right. Being Single. Yeah. Um, you know, I am, I've wanted to be a mom for about the last 10 years, but I haven't actively pursued it. Um, until the last probably two years. I mean, partly because for the first time, I'm 40 now. So for the first half of my 30s, sometimes I was in a relationship, but I was never in a serious relationship with the other, where the other person and I both wanted to pursue having kids. And then I got into the relationship I'm in now. And it took a couple years before, you know, my boyfriend was on board. And so we've, spent, I would say about the last two years trying to various degrees. And now we're kind of at that stage of, well, do we try fertility treatments? And if so, which ones do we try? And, you know, how invasive, you know, are we okay with them being and how much money do we want to spend? And, you know, it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the next step is because, you know, I, I don't want to get my heart broken. Like I don't want to put, and I also don't want to disrupt our lives so much that every second of every day is spent obsessing over that. Cause I think that wouldn't be worth it as much as I really do want to be a mom. And I'm, you know, I think that I would be good at it. And I think that it would fulfill something very deep inside me. You know, there's, there's a lot of things I am willing to do, but I don't want to sacrifice the quality of my relationship or the, you know, in order to do that, I don't want to completely upend our lives. Well, at the same time, I know that if we have a kid, it, it is to some degree or to a large degree going to upend our lives. Like, you know, so I'm sort of trying to figure out what, you know, what we're willing to sacrifice right now, both financially and time wise, and just physically, you know, h- how we're going to manage that, and what's possible for for either for both of our comfort levels. Yeah. I think that there's so much intentionality that goes into it when you're considering becoming a parent either, you know, at the end of your fer- most fertile years um or, you know, when you're younger and you you need some medical technical help getting pregnant. I it, it's a you know about more than half of women get pregnant cuz they just get pregnant. You know, they they don't even mean to. They just get pregnant. And then there are people who get pregnant easily and they're being very intentional about it. But then there's this whole other conversation going on about how intentional you get to be, must be, um, or are. Yeah. And I mean, there's some elements of that I can plan. Like I can say, okay, I'll try this many cycles of this, but I can't plan how I'm going to feel. And I think that's... You know, that's where a lot of our tension comes in around this because, you know, I think for him, he really doesn't want me to go through all these physical procedures. And if they don't work, he doesn't want me to kind of completely collapse and be unable to do anything because I'm so, you know, heartbroken. And so so it's hard. I I think you do have to have an element of faith if you're going to go through that. You know, you have to think it's going to work or hope it's going to work. Otherwise, I don't think you would go through all that. But at the same time, I want to be realistic. So, you know, it's tough. And I also think it's, it's something that I'm not, 
I'm happy to be sharing publicly to the degree to the degree I have, but it also means that kind of everyone and their sister has suggestions, and sometimes those are helpful, but sometimes they're a little overwhelming. You know, it can be daunting. You can't follow everyone's advice. Right, nor should you, because, you know, that's what gut instinct is about. Somewhere deep inside, you actually know exactly what to do. You just have to... I hope so. (laughs) Well, you do. And that's the thing about that continues throughout your parenting years, is somewhere amidst all the chaos and noise that happens when you have a family, you know exactly what to do. You just have to clear out the clutter and get there. And, um, you know, I think that it's really hard for some people to clear out the clutter. And for other people, it just comes naturally. So, yeah, you're in for a good time, my dear. Thank you. No, it's a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rachel, I, I think that we have talked a lot today. I would love to have another conversation down the road, you know, to talk more about trying to get pregnant and all of that. So until then, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you so much for joining us on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. Thank you. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Today's guest was Rachel Kramer Bussell. You can learn more about her work at rachelkramerbussell.com. Follow her at Raquelita on Twitter. You can learn, learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Tweet me, email me, and don't forget to go buy the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, will ya? Um, I'm at jean at jeanfaulkner.com, and my, you can tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for sharing, tweeting, subscribing, and I'll talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.